Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Julie Ann Van Loon about her book, The Thinking Woman. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Beth, and thanks for having me. Uh, could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? I'm uh, a novelist primarily. I uh, s- published my first book back in 2005 and uh, won the Australian Vogel Award with that, my first manuscript. And I published three novels so far. Um, but The Thinking Woman is my first work of non-fiction, so it's a little bit of a new thing for me to kind of veer in this direction. And I'm, I've for a day job, I uh, taught creative writing for a long time. So I used to run the creative writing program at Curtin University in Perth, where I lived for a long time. And over the last four years or so, I've been based in Melbourne and I have a research fellowship in the School of Media and Communication at RMIT. So what was it that inspired you to write The Thinking Woman? Well, it was another book. It was my kind of reaction to Alain de Botton's The Consolations of Philosophy, which he published, oh goodness, probably 15 years ago now. And I love his book. I, I love that particular book. I, I, have, I have sort of, I have followed most of his career, you know, beyond that as well. And I haven't enjoyed the later books so much. But The Consolations of Philosophy really interested me as a um, as an experiment with genre. And he did this with his very first book as well, which is sort of marketed as a novel but was really crossing over the the border between fiction and philosophy and I found the consolations of philosophy just interesting generically too because his whole project was about taking philosophy out of the academy and applying it to everyday life so he has chapters like consolations for not having enough money or consolations for not having enough friends or these these kinds of things and he uses within each chapter a particular classical philosopher and applies that philosopher's ideas to that problem and I thought what a lovely way you know to bring philosophy to everyday readers and and I've finished the book you know and I've read it several times since and I I still really enjoy it and I enjoy the work of the philosophers that he's talking about but it is it is all the classical white male kind of philosophers who we've all heard of before. And so almost as soon as I finished reading the book, which, as I say, it excited me in terms of what he was doing with genre, but my you know, immediate reaction was, wow, how different would this book be if all the philosophers he was talking about were living contemporary women? And what... What, what would that look like? <laughs> and so I just sort of sat with that for, you know, a few years really and I spoke to others about my reaction to his book and sort of mulled over, well, if you did do women, who would you speak to? Then the sort of question of, well, who would write such a book? And <laughs> eventually I decided, well, maybe I can do it. <laughs> and and I, I, so I have a background, as I said earlier, in creative writing. But with that I've got 
set of degrees that have taken me through literary studies and cultural studies and critical cultural theory is a part of the thing, big part of the thinking that goes into those kinds of disciplines. So philosophy for me is something that's always been there in the material that I'm reading and feminism has been a part of that as well. So that that's kind of where I'm coming from in, in terms of my discipline, disciplinary, formal disciplinary background, but I'm certainly not a trained philosopher. So, so for me, that project about making the philosopher's ideas relevant to everyday life is sort of something I'm taking from the middle. I don't see myself as sitting in the capital P philosophy department moving outwards. I'm sort of a bridge between because I'm an, I'm an educated writer, reader, critic myself. So I'm sort of trying to sit as the author between one school, <laughs> you know, one particular school of philosophy and the broader kind of readership. So that's, that's I think, something that appealed to me about this kind of project. With so many women thinkers, well, basically in the world. How did you manage to choose the ones that you wrote about? Well, it, look, it's a deeply personal, entirely subjective kind of a project, as you'll see, you know, as readers will see if they come to read the book. What I did was I thought in the first instance about the themes. I thought, what, what are those kind of broad themes that are relevant to all of us, no matter who we are? So then I brought the philosophers to the themes, if you like. So my, my themes early on were love and friendship, work and play and fear and wonder. And so as you can see, they're quite broad. And those chapter titles that are in place now in the final version of the book are, are the titles and the themes, you know, that I had really early on. And some of that, even just, even just to come up with those particular themes, is kind of plugging into my own interests. So I had a particular interest in play, for example, and I had read a particular work about love that I really wanted to think more about and write more about. So I, I had the themes and then I sort of went out and thought, well, who whose work would I look at? And, I, and there were some dead ends. You know, I sort of thought, oh, well, I'll, I think uh, so-and-so would be interesting, you know, on this and I'd read through their body of work and then find that I just couldn't find my own kind of way in. It had to sort of come to life for me in the first instance, I think, in order to for it in order for me to feel like I could make it come to life for others. So other people would have chosen different different thinkers but the other thing that happened almost immediately of course is that I, I started with this idea well I'm going to look at contemporary women philosophers and then I had to immediately define for myself what philosopher ER means <laughs> and you start looking in the academic philosophy departments and there are very very few women as you would well know Beth <laughs> and so I had to define philosophy more broadly I had to think well what what does philosophy mean again in its broadest everyday sense and I decided well it's really just about the making meaning in life thinking about the meaning of things and so once I realized that I could kind of escape the confines of capital P academic philosophy. I broadened my reading and I was attracted to women who were working in in fiction or writing novels, women in gender studies, women in cultural studies, women who were sort of more commonly associated with the social sciences. So philosophy as a, as a discipline sort of broadened out and that was a wonderful moment to kind of go, aha, I don't have to confine my thinkers. <laughs> I can just go where they, wherever they want to take me and uh, that was a real freedom. Now you've given all your chapters such fantastic names. Could you tell us about chapter one, love? Yes, certainly. This was the first chapter I wrote and it came really very directly out of reading a book by 
the thinker who I I refer to in that chapter, which is Laura Kipnis. She's a cultural studies professor at Northwestern University in the States. And the book of hers that I stumbled across, well, in fact, um, initially it was not so much the book but an essay. So in Critical Inquirer, which is a sort of academic journal, I found an essay of hers about adultery and she was she she was sort of exploring the question is adultery a political act and uh, she does that exploration with such a fantastic combination of humor and intelligence <laughs> that I was just captivated I was captivated by her writing and also by the just the sort of bravado of, of her work I think and so I thought I've got to read more of this woman's work and I, and I looked her up and and then I realized I had actually read early in my own studies in um, literary studies some of her early work her first book is on pornography. So she has an interest in errant behaviour and sexuality and that is all applied to great effect in this book, Against Love, which is the book she wrote as an extension of the essay I stumbled across. And she calls it Against Love, a a polemic, and she sort of starts off by saying, well, who who would be against love? That's ridiculous. But it's really a cultural critique of domestic coupledom and I found it, I was at a moment in my own long-term monogamous relationship where I was really stumbling to understand why I was there, (laughs) what had happened to me, why I'd kind of ended up in this particular scenario and uh, her, I, I say in 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 the the, uh, in the thinking woman that you know if ever a book changed my life it was this one and it was really I, she really she really prompted me to think deeply about the the broad kind of effect if you like of domestic coupledom being about the maintenance of the social order. Mm, no, it's it's interesting, yeah, when you look into that because. I've got a couple of friends of mine who are gay males and they've decided to have a non-monogamous relationship, which works really well for them. They've been together for many years. But one in particular, he um, has sex quite a bit outside the relationship and he said that he prefers to have sex with married men, well, straight married men. They identify as, as straight and they're married to women because uh, he said there's no emotional attachment there. and But it is quite astounding how many of these straight married men actually go off and have sex with other men and their their partners have no idea about it. Yeah, yeah. The, the more you look at the kind of uh, policing, including self-policing that goes on in our kind of domestic coupledom arrangements, the more interesting it gets. And one of the interesting things about Laura Kipnis's Against Love is that she writes the book entirely in the second person. And so there are no he's or she's uh, in it. She doesn't refer to heterosexual versus homosexual. She's just talking about domestic coupledom in whatever form it takes. And she does this really interesting sort of experiments where she she asks so one of the questions she asks in her sort of social science research aspect of um, doing the research for the book is what can't you do because you're in a relationship people come up with with all with all the all these these long like in the in in the book this the answers to this question go on for like five or six pages and people say things like well you can't be spontaneous or you can't say the the c word or you can't you, t- you can't take risks. <laughs> you know, there are all sorts of different answers. And um, one uh, one example that Laura Kipnis does uh, it gives when I when we come up when the topic comes up in in our interview, um, she says her 
father's so her father has um, repartnered the woman who's not Laura's mother and uh, and Laura says he he says to her your friends can't call you after 10 p.m at night that's my time (laughs) that's our that's time to be together that's my time you know with you they can't have it you know so there's all these little that can be quite subtle these sort of demonstrations of fidelity or infidelity so as I say you know the more the more you look into it the more the more kind of fascinating it is yeah, well, it certainly is, yeah. No, I certainly wouldn't like a time frame put on when I could speak to my friends or when <laughs> exactly. I could. Actually, when you were saying that, I was just laughing to myself and I thought, I, I suppose there's always some things that are just no-go areas. I, I always say that never never ask me to choose between it's either me or the dog. You just, you know where the door is. And <laughs> and the same thing with my friends. I mean, I, I've known people who have gotten into relationships and then that's it. Their, their new partner wants them to let their friends go. Yeah. And I mean, that is just, I mean, you're having that support network. I mean, no two people stay together forever. Either you break up or one person dies. And I think a lot of people don't realise that, do they? That's that's right. And again, this is something that comes up in Kipnis's work as she talks about our, the way that we subjugate ourselves to this no ma- uh, notion of romantic love, almost in place of God, this kind of idea that we've sort of become, many of us, we think of ourselves as kind of operating in a secular society. So the church may have told our parents or their parents what to do, but it's not for us. We, we, we're more enlightened than that. And yet we, very many of us, and some of the most surprising people that you come across, you know, in your friendship group, have this very conservative and very deep attachment to domestic coupledom as, perma- as a permanent arrangement romantic love as a, as a as a permanent kind of ideal and the and then beneath that the idea that if that fails then that's the end of the world or or even just that breaking up is is to be read as a kind of a failure <laughs> you know as opposed to something that you would normally expect to happen so all all that's you know kind of interesting grist for the meal in, in Kipnis's thinking about it. But I guess the the main thing that I haven't mentioned about that chapter that which is the thing that got me really thinking in a kind of broader philosophical and social sense about domestic coupledom as a method for maintaining the social order. So Kipnis goes she's she's trained in Marxism and identifies as a Marxist and she takes a particular interest in Herbert Marcuse whose work stems from Marx as well and she looks at this notion that relationships take work and she she goes out and reads a whole bunch of self-help literature about domestic coupledom and she finds this phrase relationships take work all the way through all of this literature and so she starts to look at the way in which we might be manufacturing our own alienation in in Marx's sense of a kind of the capitalist worker in these domestic relationships which is kind of fascinating I think (laughs) yeah yeah no it is a that's a really good way to look at something look at an old tradition in a different way yeah exactly now you're listening to radical philosophy on radio 3cr 855 on your am dial and I'm speaking with Dr Julianne Van Loon about her publication, The Thinking Woman. Now, Chapter 2, play. Right. Look, this idea for a chapter that looks at play really came out of my lived experience of parenthood. So I had my first child uh, in my late 30s 
and I was kind of fascinated very, very early on with play between an infant and usually the mother, but not always the mother, and the way in which play word word salads and you know sort of silly repetitions back and forth and the passing of objects back and forth and the kind of appearing and reappearing you know that Freud talked about about how how all that sort of play really is so essential to the formation of human subjectivity or you know the 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 notion of self and so I started reading scholarly and philosophical work about play and thinking more and more about not just then, you know, just sort of extending my my thinking and my questions around play to adult life, and so really the question at the core of that chapter is this question of to to what extent is play essential to adult life? So we talk about it a lot in you know you find a lot of literature on it in early childhood and and in educational settings and and so on. People rightly argue, and it's a shame that they still have to argue for the right of a child to play, but sort of because it's really this is a book about applying philosophy to your own everyday life I sort of think well how you know what forms of play am I engaged in and when we talk about free play children is that possible as, as an adult and what would it look like and I'm a big fan of the American novelist Siri Hustved and she's the thinker that is the kind of central point for this for this particular chapter and i I went off to New York to to meet her and to and she and to to talk to her and and as with each of the women that I speak to in for the purposes of the book we have we have several meetings over and so it's it's a conversation that lasts quite a few hours but the conversation just is about that about that particular theme and uh, from a philosophical angle and 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 uh, Siri Hustved was re- just really delighted that someone had come to talk to her about an idea you know <laughs> as opposed to trying to kind of gather some kind of uh, contraband to put in the social pages as <laughs> is so often the case with with people who have a reputation in their field so so her work is really fascinating to me on this question of play she has a so she she is primarily a novelist but she's also written quite a bit of non-fiction and The Shaking Woman might be a book that some of the 3CR listeners have, have come across which is a, a book really about neurology you know she had a um, something happened to her after her father died she found uh, she whenever she was speaking in public she couldn't stop herself from shaking and she tried all sorts of solutions to this but she en- ended up writing a book <laughs> about how this might be po- might be possible was it an imagined thing was it a, re- a real thing and she looks into neuroscience and psychoanalysis which is really two of her favorite topics and so she's a very very well read novelist she's got a real keen interest in philosophy and in her novels she often builds characters who have their own form of adult play in a, in an interesting kind of way so for example in the sorrows of an american she has there's a there's a woman character who hasn't left her house for 30 years but the thing that she does locked away in this in this house in the suburbs is that she makes dolls and she makes dolls based on people she's met in person at some stage in her life whose life stories have meant something to her and so she makes these quite absolutely unique character-based pictures for want of a better word you know sculptures I suppose they are and it's very very beautiful craft work and so she sells these on eBay and they go for a great <laughs> they go for a great sum and this is how she makes her living but it's a really interesting example of 
play as as an adult as a as a form of kind of um, immersion in something takes you away from other aspects of everyday life but also something that takes you towards meaning in an interesting kind of a way so yeah I'm still interested in play <laughs> I've because I work in the university sector as a researcher I've gone on post writing that chapter to to interview a bunch of um, leading Australian researchers about the role of play in their research because groundbreaking research is you know where we hear the word innovation bandied around all the time but that's kind of a be, become so bandied around that it's kind of an empty word and so I've taken an interest in asking adult researchers well, in 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 what form do you see the the kind of research you're doing as a as a form of play and it's really fascinating how deeply intrinsic their motivation is and how it and how the problem solving that they do actually often comes from a form of play for example i speak to a and I mentioned this in the in the chapter in the Thinking Woman. I speak to a physicist who solves his problems on the ballroom dance floor, and you know an oceanographer who's been thinking and thinking and thinking about a formula relating to waves, who solves it on holiday while he's swimming in a lake. You know, and things like this. There's lots and lots of instances of this, which I kind I kind of find fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And I suppose to when you're an adult, you can actually have a bit of playtime that you didn't have when you were a child because uh, I, I like teddy bears I didn't have a teddy bear as a child and right. I always wanted one yeah but now I've actually got a glass cabinet full of teddy bears and yeah. I get them out and sort of yeah. move them around I suppose I, I play with them yes so uh, I suppose it can be something that you either enjoyed when you were a child or you didn't have when you were a child and you can actually put it into your life as an adult yeah, and it's wonderful when you do, and that and that's another thing that fascinates me about this is that it gives us it gives us something important. The you know our capacity to hand time over to that that thing, which may be sometimes it's purposeful, but sometimes it's completely without purpose. It's just a thing that we do that gives us nourishment, and I, and I think that's wonderful. So you know, my question to to readers of that that chapter is really you know how how are you maintaining playfulness in in your everyday life as an adult I think it's um, something I'd like to encourage more adults to think about and to and to just and to do for whatever reason you don't need a reason actually you know (laughs) no no you don't really need a reason to play (laughs) and uh, and now your your next chapter you've called work Mm -hmm. could you explain about this Sure. Well, I mean, again, this is one of these ideas that relates to pretty much uh, everybody. Everybody's got some experience with work, some frustrations <laughs> around um, the way work corrals us or limits us, perhaps, or perhaps also about, you know, the purposefulness of work and the confidence it can give us in life and the meaning we can take from it and those kinds of things. So I, at the time I was writing the book, I was... I had reached a point in a particular job that I'd had for 17 years where I was I had found this work really purposeful for a long time but it's very demanding and I'd got to a point where I'd really lost faith in the organization that I was working for and so again it was this life experience this kind of turning over in my own mind of questions around what I was doing and why I was doing and how I'd ended up here. Those questions really drove me to read more widely in philosophies of work, which is a fascinating area and potentially kind of endless. It goes right right back in in philosophy. But 
because I was writing, you know, the thinking, the thinking woman, and I was reading with that in mind, I was of course drawn to you know, as a as a feminist and as a woman to to a lot of feminist thinkers. And the person whose work I found really interesting and who I write about in the book is Nancy Holmstrom, who's again one of the I think there's probably two women in the book who are what you might call capital P philosophers, you know, who've come in through a traditional philosophy education. So Nancy Holmstrom is one of them, and she her most recent job. She's retired now, but she was the chair of philosophy at Rutgers University in the States. And she's also the author of a book called The Socialist Feminist Reader. So so she identifies as, as a socialist feminist, which attracted me too. And anyway, she's written some interesting work on work. <laughs> it's a funny way to say that, but anyway, that's what it is. But the book that, the particular book that introduced me to her work is a wonderful book that I, I highly recommend. And it's called Capitalism for and Against a Feminist Debate. And Nancy Holmstrom co-authors it with another academic from the US called Anne E. Cudd. And Anne Cudd argues that uh, capitalism has been good for women and Nancy Holmstrom argues that no, it has not been good for women. And in and through that debate, so they set it up as a traditional debate even though it's in written form. One gives their side and then the next and then they, the second half of the book they each give a response to the argument put forward by the other. So it's quite a um, well-rounded piece of work and it really gets you into well, everything from economics to political science to philosophy. and But Holmstrom's arguments, I, in my view, Holmstrom wins the debate. <laughs> Capitalism has not been good for women. But she is, again, very drawn to Marx and she really argues for a really urgent reappraisal of Marx's work in relation to capitalism and particularly at the point we're at now with the environmental crisis that's going on. She says it's more important than ever and one of the quotes she takes from Marx is that quote about capitalism getting into everything everywhere, even the air we breathe. And so hers is an urgent call to arms in a way for us all to really put our shoulder to the wheel and try to reimagine systems for organising the way that we do things as humans. <laughs> she says it's, it's really important and it can't be done by one thinker. Uh, we have to work together. We have to speak up. We have to think deeply about the really challenging circumstances that we're faced with right now and not just us but all living beings on the planet as a result of capitalism. So you know, you could you could sort of write endlessly, endlessly on the topic, but my particular focus on the chapter in work in The Thinking Woman is really looking at the labour aspect. And Nancy Holmstrom asks this question, who am I if I'm not my labour? So going back to my particular lived experience at the time with trying to decide whether I was completely disillusioned with the career I'd had to that point, whether to leave my job, what else might be out there for me if I did. This question, who am I if I'm not my labour, was really important to me. And I, st I had to sit down and think through, and Nancy Holmstrom was a really great guide for this through, through Marx, what is it I'm selling when I sell my labour? Or, you know, labour power is the other word that they use in in political science and, and in sort of uh, more classical Marxist kind of terms. But Holmstrom 
Holmstrom really emphasises that there are you can't be separated from your labour. So wherever I, wherever my labour or labour power goes, there go I. And she discusses in, in another article, not in the uh, book I just mentioned, she discusses sex workers as a kind of limit case for this, as a sort of form of demonstration. But really, it doesn't really matter what kind of work you're engaged in. This question of what's been bought and sold, <laughs> under what circumstances, and who or what is left afterwards. It's, again, you know, one of those questions that you're more, the more you look at it in relation to your own particular circumstances. And this is where philosophy, particularly socialist feminism, I think can be so helpful. We look at our own circumstances and then we step back, sort of broaden the lens, if you like, and look at the circumstances facing other people we know and then look to thinking <laughs> philosophy to get that really big picture, well, what's actually going on on you know, the national scale and the global scale and, and so on and what's going on in terms of gender and what's going on in terms of race and how are these things playing themselves out? One of the really fascinating history lessons that Nancy Holmstrom gave me in the Capitalism For and Against book was a lesson about the diggers who were based in the UK in the kind of early days of the Industrial Revolution and they were a group of so-called radicals. They didn't think of themselves as radicals, particularly I don't think at the time. They were just putting forward a set of ideas, but they were ideas that were diametrically opposed to the ideas that were pushing forward the Industrial Revolution. And they said, actually, property can't be owned, one, and labour can't be owned. And those two things should never be bought or sold under any circumstances. And well, <laughs> they didn't take power, obviously, but look where, it, where it's got us, selling these two things over and over and over again. You know, it's really to step up now in 2019 in a country like Australia and say, my labour can't be sold or this property is not mine nor yours and shouldn't belong to anybody, uh, is... It, it seems such a radical thing to say. And yet, if you've got any kind of collectivist bone in your body, you know in your heart of hearts that's not only true, it's the right way to look at things, <laughs> in my view. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks very much, Beth, for having me. And I've been speaking with Dr Julianne von Loon about her publication, The Thinking Woman. This is part one of a two-part interview. So tune in next week for part two. And thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy and stay tuned for the fabulous Swing and Sway.